0: Today's episode is brought to you by Story Publishing. Story Publishing offers quality books on crafting, gardening, natural health and wellness, cooking, and sustainable living. Their quilting and sewing and fiber craft books are some of my favorites. Story's expert craft authors include recent Walshinaps guest and QuiltCon presenter Thomas Nauer, author of the Quilt Design Coloring Workbook. You can get a free downloadable quilt design coloring template. From the book on Story's website. You can find the link in the show notes. Thank you so much, Story Publishing. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 97 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about building a lifelong career in sewing with my guest, Nancy Zeman. Nancy Zeman's an author, designer, businesswoman, TV producer, blogger, and National Sewing Authority. She's the host of the popular show Sewing with Nancy, which appears exclusively on public television stations across the United States and Canada. You can watch Sewing with Nancy online at nancyzeman.com. Sewing with Nancy is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Television and Nancy Zeman Productions. Broadcast since September of 1982, the program is the longest-airing sewing series on television. Nancy organizes each show in a how-to format, concentrating on step-by-step instructions. Nancy's also written numerous how-to sewing and quilting books and released her autobiography, Seems Unlikely, in 2013. She designs patterns for the New York-based McCall Pattern Company, Designs sewing and quilting products for Clover Needlecraft Incorporated. Designs fabric collections with Riley Blake Designs. And also writes an interactive blog at nancyzeman.com slash blog. Nancy lives in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin with her husband Richard. The couple has two children and three grandchildren. Nancy mm-hmm. Zeman, Welcome. Thank you Abby. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. I'm so excited to talk with you. It's really an honor for me. When I when I was a new mom back in 2004 before I started this blog and podcast, I would sit on the couch in our little apartment and I had a tiny preemie newborn and I would nurse her and watch you on TV and dream of a time when I would be out of that newborn fog. And would be able to be creative again. And your voice is so calming and reassuring. Uh, <laughs> well, you, thank you. Yeah, you helped me get through that period of my life. So I want to say thank you to you for
1: that. Oh, you're welcome. If I had only known. <laughs> yes, I was
0: out there. And, I, and I'm and i sure so many of the people listening to the show uh, feel the same way about watching you on TV and just feeling calm and reassured by you and your presence so sewing with Nancy has been on the air, as we said in the intro, since September of 1982. That is 35 years, and it
1: is yes. yes.
0: David Letterman. <laughs> I, I was just thinking, David Letterman was on the air for 33. You've beat him. Yeah. Well, just you know, just so you know, I started when I was 16. Hey, right. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> so I mean, the longest running sewing show on television. That is an incredible accomplishment. I just wondered if you could tell us the brief overhead idea of what is Sewing with Nancy? What is the mission of the show and what are you trying to do with each of the episodes? Mm
1: -hmm. My mission is to teach sewing in a streamlined way and it is not anything that has to do with the sewing machine. So when people think of sewing, they may think of fashion sewing. Well, that's part of it. But fashion, quilting, embroidery, a little home deck, and soon we'll have a big push for having some experience sewing, working with young kids, not that the kids are sewing themselves, but incorporating how to introduce them to sewing in a very light-hearted way. So if you have a sewing machine and you can sew it basically i I think I've taught it on sewing with Nancy yeah, so we've evolved over the years it It started with eighty percent garment sewing and twenty percent quilting. Now it's maybe 60% quilting, 20%
0: embroidery, and the rest, fashion sewing. And I wonder why that shift came about. Is that because quilting just saw a resurgence over the years that you've been doing this? Or was there something about your own personal interest that's shifted?
1: Well, a combination. Definitely the interest in the viewer, but also the economy, the market, fabric stores have practically disappeared. And they used to be in department stores, many independent fabric stores. Now they're few and far between, sad to say. And I'm seeing some, a glimmer of hope where there are a few independent fabric stores that are specializing in fashion sewing coming along. And of course, The web helps out immensely that I can buy fabric online, but how the market changes. In 35 years, things change a lot. So there was embroidery hand free motion embroidery on the sewing machine, but not computerized embroidery. So as the economy has changed, the technology has changed, I've tried to change too.
0: Yeah. And I think that that shows so much. And we're going to talk about those changes as we go along here, because As you said, when you've been in a business for that long, that's an inevitable part of it. And Mm -hmm. you've got to embrace it if you want to stay relevant. So take us back a little bit to the fall of 1982 (laughs) um, when you were just getting ready to film the first episode of Sewing with Nancy. I really enjoyed reading your autobiography, Seems Unlikely, and hearing these stories. And for people who haven't yet had a chance to read the book or might be intrigued now to go and get it, I'd love to hear from you about that very beginning and how it came to be. You had been traveling around teaching sewing, right? right? right. And then you started selling notions to the women who were in the classes, Mm -hmm. and that kind of led to the beginning of the show. Yes.
1: I started Nancy's Notions really on my kitchen table. We were living in Virginia, Minnesota, a small community, and I didn't have a job. We would moved from Chicago where I worked for a publishing company of sewing books. And so I decided to freelance give seminars and sell the few books that this company published and a few notions. And at that time, and this was 1979, notions were Oh, there was an iron safe, a Teflon-type foot that hit on the bottom of an iron. There were a collar point and tube turner and a SimFlex gauge that measured buttonholes. These were novel things because in fabric stores, there were very few notions. This was even before the time of disappearing marking pens. And, and now I hate to tell you this, but you know it, it was very limited. So I started giving seminars, and I traveled a lot. and. I was newly married. It was not a way to really start a marriage by being gone for two weeks at a time. And someone offered me, you know, there's this thing called cable television. And actually, Abby, I recorded the pilot, videotaped the pilot in late 81. At that time, if you said cable television to people, perhaps they thought it was the cable that was holding their antenna to the top of their roof. It it didn't register in our vernacular.
0: Yeah, no, I'm sure that that's true. I was, um, in let's see, 1979. I was four. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Oh, that's the way
1: it goes, you know. I, uh, <laughs> right. So this person asked me in, in Milwaukee. He owned a store and was videotaping lessons for the people who have purchased sewing machines. And he heard about this new thing called cable television. And obviously, I have a facial paralysis. And I thought, I I really am not TV material. But, you know, I thought, okay, I'll give this a try. You know, I expected it to be a one and done thing because I didn't really know what it was. It took us 13 hours to record or in those days it's called videotape. The first episode, we had one camera, the lights were hot. I got a sunburn on my face because it was recorded in our living room, a small little two bedroom
0: house. And oh my goodness, it was, it was quite the deal. But and basically, his goal was to sort of do a demo of sewing machine and that way convince people to buy more sewing machines. Is that That's right? That's
1: what he did with his wife and his store. But for me, he thought, well, let's try this cable television thing, which I didn't know anyone who had cable television. But we did it. And I thought, well, maybe this is a way of getting off the road. And uh, so we did one, and the name of this television cable station was SPN, the Satellite Program Network. It's no longer in existence. But they were desperate for programming. They took our program, and I recorded 11 shows with him. And then at show number 11, he said, "Uh, this isn't working, and kind of cavalierly said, go ahead and try it yourself. And I had a three-month-old baby. I thought, oh, my boy, there's no way I'm going to do this. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat thinking, if you don't do this now, you'll never have another opportunity. And I have never had this two o'clock in the morning revelation like I did then and uh, continued. Then I made some calls and did it on my own and got a three-month contract with SPM because I didn't think I could pay for more than three months.
0: And it worked. Let's just clarify too. So you were paying them to create and yeah. publish the show. It wasn't vice versa.
1: No, I still—that's still the same thing today. I do not get paid to be on television because I'm the producer. I have to pay for the production. People think that you know I get paid to do it. No, I don't. Even with public television, I have to pay for the production costs.
0: I see. Yeah. So I think that is something that people probably really don't understand because I think most of us may be more familiar with commercial television Mm -hmm. versus public television. And you think, well, if you are a TV star, you're, you're, you know, earning the big bucks, but that's (laughs) not how this works. No,
1: it's not. No. You know, granted, I build in dollars so that I can pay my staff and pay myself, but it is not,
0: it's, you know, the checks do not roll in. Right. Right. Right, and um, but it does feed other aspects sure of your does. business. Oh, absolutely! Yes, yes, yeah. Which we'll talk about in a little mm-hmm. bit because I think the two are kind of together: the TV show plus the other aspects they work of in your tandem. business. Absolutely, in tandem. Yeah. Okay, great. So that's interesting that you had that middle of the night reckoning. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I've got to go and do this. Something inside you said this was an opportunity right. not to be missed. And I do want to go back a little bit to. That first notion that you were talking about when this gentleman said to you, will you do these videos for us? And you said, you know, I have a facial paralysis. paralysis. Mm -hmm. TV is not for me. And you've talked openly on your show about having Bell's palsy, mm-hmm. which you got when you were just a year old. Right. So it's not a secret. I mean, yeah. <laughs> obviously, anyone who watches you on TV uh-huh. can see your face, so knows that you know part of your face is paralyzed or is not symmetrical. Right. And I just wondered... When you did make that decision to go on sewing with Nancy and talk openly about it, how that decision came to be? And in hindsight, did you think it was a good thing to do to be so open about it?
1: I wish I had been more open about it earlier. I I did when I would give seminars. I always explained. But on television, I didn't do it until I was searching. We were going to buy a URL. I think nancyzeman.com. And, you know, as you do a a Google search, uh, I had had issues. No, no, I already own NancyZeman.com, but I wanted to buy NancyZemanTV.com. And I started to type in in the Google search Nancy Zeman and about three lines down when it automatically pops up things that people frequently Google, it said Nancy Zeman's face. And it just hit me that, ah, I better do something about this and my staff would get questioned when we would travel to someone said has Nancy been in an accident did she have a stroke i thought okay now it's time to be forthcoming and explain what i have and so i invited a neurosurgeon from the university of wisconsin to be my guest to, to explain the difference between bell's palsy which is an inflammation that occurred in my cranial nerve in, through an earache and damaged the nerve difference between that and a stroke and acoustic neuroma, which are three things that can give this comparable look. So that opened a floodgate of comments from people who, like you said, I watched you when I was nursing my preemie baby, or people said, I watched you when I was recovering from an accident, or I've had a stroke. And I think if Nancy can do it, so can I. And I'm really not out there to prove that if you have a a handicap that you can overcome it. I'm just a teacher, that's all I am. But I happen to have this unique look, and uh, you might as well embrace what, what you can't change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that was really brave. And I think having somebody who was an expert come on with you was a great way to do mm-hmm. it so that it wasn't just coming from you and, and, you know, it was really hearing the medical side of it and, and how it came to be and what it means. And I can definitely see it would give people confidence and faith that. You don't have to be perfect to be successful. right? And so in some way, did that lead you to write this autobiography, Seems Unlikely? Yeah, that
1: was the springboard for
0: writing Seems Unlikely. And I, you know, I'm
1: still amazed that I did that, even though I'm, I'm a public person. I'm fairly private in my little community and home. It may not seem that way, but I am a private person. But it seemed like the right thing to do. And the goal of that book was if I can give one person confidence to get outside of their handicap, and we all have them. We all have handicaps. Some are social, some are economic, some are physical, some come at different stages of our lives, but we have problems that we need to rise above. And if a person can get out of their box of feeling sorry for themselves or, or have encouragement, enough. if I have given that to one person, then I'm successful.
0: Yeah, and I think you've definitely given that to many more than one person, but I (laughs) agree with you. Thank you, Abby. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting how you describe yourself as a private person or sort of a reserved person. And I know you've written that you're the most unlikely of television personalities. And I just wonder how you combat that or, you know, how you sort of get into the mode of being basically on stage in front of a camera. You know, do you still feel nervous when you get ready to go on? Not too much. I. Uh, if I'm
1: prepared, I think then I'm ready to go. I we work months in advance for each program, and I have three or four two-part series going on at different stages all year round. We don't record in one week of a time. You know, like some programs record maybe 13 shows in a week. I do two a month. In one day, we get two programs recorded. So it averages about that time every month. So if I'm prepared, I'm good. I'm good to go.
0: Yeah. And you know, I can relate to that because I used to be a sixth grade teacher and mm-hmm. I'm also a quite a reserved person and not a naturally outgoing person, but being in front of a classroom, if I was prepared, I felt totally at ease Mm -hmm. and not nervous. So I think, yeah, it's almost like knowing your script. If you're going to be acting in a play, you don't feel as nervous because you know exactly what's going to happen. Right. And what kind of project or guest makes for the best episode? You've done so many episodes. (laughs) I'm sure that some of them have been smooth sailing and some of them have been, oh my gosh, this is hard to do. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about sort of what project or what kind of person makes it easy?
1: I've learned a lot about interviewing people and planning planning in advance. Initially, I didn't have as many guests as I do now. Now we have guests, I'd say, 80% of the time. And again, it's preparation and working with that person, but also coaching them on how to respond to A question. I I, I like football and not everybody does, but I compare in sports, you know, there's the play by play commentator and the color commentator, the person that gives the how to information and the other person that ad libs or gives behind the scenes information or statistics. I'm the play-by-play. I keep everybody on track. I know what we're going to do next. I time every program to 26 minutes and 46 seconds. So I kind of know where we're going, what we got to accomplish in this short time. But when I pitch a comment to my guest, I say, now, you cannot answer in an yes or no <laughs> question. So they may say, now, on this quilt project, you've used shirting fabric. And I don't want a yes answer. I I want yes. And and we have different colors and we have different scale. And, you know, I want them to be the color commentator. So I've learned that anybody who has written a book or a topic can do television as long as you coach them in advance. And I didn't know right. I didn't always coach them. And then I'd get. And then it was like, like pulling taffy. So then I say, okay, now maybe let's, let's try this again. And maybe you could answer this way. Oh, okay. So I learn as well as they do.
0: Right. And you're helping to provide them with a structure Mm -hmm. and explain to them, how is this going to work? And giving them confidence, your confidence I'm sure also helps them feel confident, like you're steering the ship and so they're in good hands.
1: I I hope so. That's that's the goal. And we, as you mentioned in the introduction, it's a co-production, my office in Wisconsin, public television. The crew that I have there is superb. We've worked together a long time. They get it. We have a routine. They know how to make guests feel comfortable. So it's just not me. And I want to say this, if I could, that You know, it's called Sewing with Nancy, but it really should be called Sewing with Nancy, Donna, Kate, Deanna, Lois, Emily. You know, it has a whole litany of people that make this happen.
0: Yeah, I filmed a few online classes with some companies, and that was one thing that really struck me. I mean, it's obviously not public television, but it's somewhat similar, and it's a how-to sewing program, and what really struck me and helped me to not be nervous When I got there was realizing that every single person and there's usually eight or 10 people in the room Mm -hmm. has a job and each one of them is dependent on the other. And so if the camera person doing the B-roll messes up or forgets to turn things on or or misses a shot or whatever, we all have to start over. And it's not just me flubbing up my lines or something like that. Mm -hmm. No, it's a team you got it. Yes, it's a team. Exactly. That's interesting to hear. And I also loved in Seems Unlikely, the portion on which you talk about building Nancy's notions, Mm -hmm. which is the notions portion of your business. And I'd love to hear those stories as well. So this is a, a company that really started in your home, on your kitchen table and right. in your basement. Yes. And I just so relate to that because I also work for my home. And mm-hmm. so I think a lot of people who are listening to this probably do. So tell us about those early days of Nancy's notions.
1: Yes. Wow. It, it, people who are your age and younger probably can't always relate to this because so much has changed business-wise since 1979, when you were four years old, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at that time, there wasn't such a thing as an 800 number. Internet, of course, there wasn't that. And mail order was relatively a novel thing. Direct mail, certainly, there were a few mail order companies, but few and far between. As far as in our industry, fabric stores, there were fabric stores in every small little community.
0: Yeah, and also in all the department stores oh, that, had a fabric yeah, that was huge. section. Mm-hmm. So you have
1: to you know, take the, those two equations away for the most part. And then that's where we are today, adding in 800 numbers online. There wasn't YouTube. There were a few books, very few books uh, on the market. The Vogue sewing book was my mainstay book. And then Coates and Clarks had a beginner book. And so, you know, there weren't, it was, it was different. But anyway, so I had worked for a small publishing company of sewing books. I knew a little bit about doing artwork and things were, you know, typeset. And we had to go to a typesetter to get the type placed and you'd lay it out on boards and so forth. But I decided I'm getting too deep here, but I just decided that, okay, we're going to try this direct mail. I had a few products. I lived in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, you know, population (laughs) Uh 15,000. I think I can do this. Yeah. And uh, so I would give seminars, hand out a flyer, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that had products on both sides and a mail order coupon on the back at a post office box. And after giving a seminar, I'd anxiously go to a post office box and see if there would be an order or two Uh fill it from our second bedroom of a two bedroom apartment. And then we moved to a house and then it moved to the basement. And as I would hand out a catalog, I said, if you'd like to sign up, or it wasn't a catalog, it was a sheet. If you'd like to be in my mailing list, you know, sign up here on this index card. So then I entered and I had a secretary at that time. And we'd enter the names on Avery labels, which I don't know if you know what that is. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> labels on a sheet. And we'd mimeograph or photocopy. I had to take them someplace to have them photocopied My first photocopier was $10,000. my (laughs) (laughs) gosh. Oh oh my, oh my. Anyway, that was way over the top, but I had to get one. And so I started making small little extra brochures and handing them out. And man, it was fun to go to the post office and get orders. And then my mother and father-in-law started working with me. And my father-in-law was a farmer who had retired and he had a building on his farm that he started to remodel, put in paneling and put in an air conditioning and put in heating. And he said, we're moving out to the farm to fill orders. So I had my office in the basement, a mail order a couple miles away and things just expanded. And 800 numbers came And television was the driving factor because when I started on television, it was on cable and I had commercials. So we did these horrendous commercials They were just, you know, (laughs) send three first class postage stamps to get your catalog. So you could get these, you could perhaps order these five notions or 10 notions or whatever, but people sent in stacks and stacks of stamps. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So it's kind of, it's kind of comical in 1990s came 800 numbers and then 1994 came the web. We hardly had any orders by the web, but we got in early. We got into desktop publishing very early too with Macs and things really catapulted in the late 80s early 90s. So we were I was in the right place at the right time because I certainly didn't have money. I had very little money to invest and and I didn't need a website, I didn't need 800 numbers. I didn't need a lot of investment to
0: get going. And were the money that you were earning, were you putting almost all of it right back into For the, the business? First three years, yes. I didn't take a salary. Uh, yes, everything went back into that area. And then when the show then went to public television <laughs> and you no longer had the commercials, How was that then working still in tandem with the Nancy's Notions company? Yes, we didn't get as many, you're
1: right, no more commercials. At least for two years, I was on cable as well as on public television. It It was 1985, and Nebraska Public Television asked for the program, which was the opening door to get into public television. And I didn't know if this would work. So we had six minutes of commercial time in our cable program. So we re-edited the programs, and I added a six-minute section at the back of the program, end of the program, called The Mailbag. And I answered people's questions. But, Abby, you know, the first programs, we didn't have questions. Right. So (laughs) I made them up. Sure, of course, of course. (laughs) But at the end of the program, there's a 30-second tag that says, for the book that accompanies today's program, you know, you can send... 1099 to Nancy's Notions, P.O. Box 683, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's uh-huh. how we, we added to our mailing list through that small little mention. And, I see. And we did advertising. We went to consumer shows when they were just first starting. So then we kind of morphed into what was the new trend in our industry, and those were consumer shows.
0: Right. I see. Okay. And did you go to the trade shows as well? Like, did you go back then to quilt market and that kind of thing? They, they didn't have quilt market started about the same time
1: that I started Nancy's notions, maybe a few years later, but yes, I did go to quilt market. We did have a wholesale business, but there were many more sewing shows for consumers around the country. Uh And then I did guilds, um, American Sewing Guild Uh into quilting guilds and and spoke there. And we had I had a staff that traveled to some of the basic shows that uh, were around the country. So, yeah, we, we tried to go on. What was what was the new and up and coming way of marketing? We tried to grab a hold of that.
0: I want to take a minute now to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Story Publishing. I love craft books, and I especially love craft books with enduring value. You know, the ones you could never give away because they're jam-packed with useful techniques that you can apply to your projects for years to come. Take a look at the spines of those books sometime. I guarantee you'll see the Story logo there. Story publishes craft techniques and project books for knitting, crochet, spinning, weaving, sewing, quilting, and creativity. They publish my favorite English paper piecing book, All Points Patchwork by Diane Gilliland. The absolute best book for teaching kids to sew, Sewing School. And the One Yard Wonder series, which has just become a classic in craft books. If you're interested in learning more about Story or about how to write an excellent craft book, be sure to tune in to episode 47 of this podcast, where you can hear my interview with Story's publisher, Deborah Balmuth. She shares excellent advice for making your craft book proposal stand out. And she's also just an excellent person. So don't miss that one. And check out Story's newly designed website where you can find original content from their expert authors, including articles and free downloads and craft technique videos. Their monthly newsletter always has a great curated collection of original articles, sneak peeks of upcoming books, and news about fun giveaways. See it all at story.com. That's story spelled S-T-O-R-E-Y. Thank you so much, Story Publishing. And now back to my conversation with Nancy. And you were talking about how you kind of got in early, both with desktop publishing on the Mac mm-hmm. and also with being on the web. And I wondered whether that came from you as a person who is drawn to technology and is excited about those things, or whether someone who was working with you said, hey, we got to get in and try this, or how you know, the computer technology sure. piece of this came to be. Well, I'm a risk taker.
1: I really do calculated risk. But I I could see this desktop publishing was, when I knew all the work that it took to do the cut and paste on boards, I was willing to give it a try. And uh, my husband joined me in business, it was about 1983, he has a business background and worked in retail, managing a store, and he was the operations side of it, the warehousing, the order entry, he got us up into the computer age with computer ordering and fulfillment. I see. And I kind of did the marketing part of it. So as far as desktop publishing, I could see that this is going to work. It was really not as much of a risk as maybe I'm explaining it right now.
0: Right. But you could see kind of predicting into the future that this was going to make things easier and better. And and it was something that you needed to be part of. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. So your husband, Rich, joined you in the business. And was that... Is that ever hard working together? I mean, I, oh, I um, yeah, my husband uh, <laughs> works in a very different job in finance and he works in downtown Boston and I'm here working at home doing what I do. And I can't, I mean, we have a fun marriage, but I can't imagine working with him. I think that could be hard. So I wondered if that, yeah, working together as a husband and wife and then working in business, is that ever hard? Yes, it is. It was the best thing we ever did. It
1: was the most difficult thing we ever did rich rich has great foresight great business savvy whenever he would walk around with a yardstick i knew we were going to add on to a building and <laughs> but uh, but i'd have to help pay for it you know and, and when you're and i would say this if he was standing right here you know that we it, it was a trial but it was it had to happen in order to make our business grow it was hard to leave work at work you know, we could almost, you know, every morning brushing your teeth, you'd almost have, you know, you'd be discussing business at, at the dinner table. I remember one time our six-year-old son said, hey, I'm here. You know, <laughs> so that was a real wake-up call that we tried to leave work at work. We worked together for 19 years and grew Nancy's notions, and I have talked to many husband and wife teams who have very comparable stories that one spouse is stronger in one area, and we tried to have a division of labor. When it came to marketing, we could give each other's opinion, but I had the final vote. When it came to operations, he he got the final vote.
0: I see. Yeah. Okay. And, and you know, I think it's, um, I think that, again, that's a story a lot of people who listen to this show share where their business takes off to the degree where mm-hmm. their spouse can quit their job. And if their spouse's interests and skill sets match, it does make sense for mm-hmm. them to join the business. Although it it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy every moment of the day. <laughs> yeah. So... Absolutely. And in 2003, you ended up selling Nancy's Notions to Coney Corporation, which is also the owner of Baby Lock, Mm -hmm. the sewing machine company. And I wondered whether you sort of thought about or positioned the business as something that you would want to sell at some point or whether Mm -hmm. there was another motivation to
1: sell it. Because I know it was like your baby. It was my first child, you know. And uh, yes, we had a board of directors that we met every month. Our attorney was on the board of directors and it was about 2001. And one day he said at a board meeting, so what are you going to do with this business eventually? Are you going to sell it? Are you going to leave it to your children? Are you going to have an ESOP employee stock option program? Um, And I kind of looked at him like, are you kidding? I, I'm, I'm working on the fall catalog. and Right, the, this is mine. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Why are you talking about me going somewhere? <laughs> and he looked at me and said, Nancy, if something happens to you, what's going to happen to Nancy's notions? And I, I was startled. I could almost tell you what I was wearing that day, where he was sitting, where I was sitting, and the look of shock on my face. And he said, just do me a favor. Just decide, decide what you're going to do we have two sons and I said, well, I'm not going to leave this to my children and make them feel that they're obligated to work in this business unless they want to. And and they were young, young at the time. So I, because I was challenged to ask somebody, I asked two companies in the sewing industry, made appointments when it was convenient. You know, would you ever be interested in partnering with Nancy's Notions or owning Nancy's Notions? And both companies just about said resounding yes.
0: Oh, interesting. And then I, you know, I So you were just kind of putting out feelers yeah. to see like is this a property somebody would purchase? I see. I was not expecting that answer at all.
1: So once you open the barn door, you, <laughs> the horses could run out and and they, you know, I got some calls a couple weeks later, well, have you thought about this? So uh, I prayed about this. Can, am I, God direct me if I'm supposed to do this. And uh, we went through the process and had our business evaluated. So I made the decision to go with the Taconi Corporation, a family-owned business. They're in this industry with baby lock sewing machines, amazing designs, Madeira Thread. So they own many, many sewing-related businesses. They did not own business-to-consumer or a direct mail business at the time. And so long story short, I made that decision because I thought, well, what if something would happen to me? Or when I'm older and I can't find a buyer and now I have one. Mm
0: -hmm. And so this was sort of ensuring your longevity in a way. And you felt as though they would preserve the essence or the, the sort of specialness that you had created and not corrupt that, even though they became the owner.
1: Yes. And they have. I could not be more pleased with i mean yeah it was tough it was tough letting go and i continued as president for 5 years after selling nancy's notions you know i'm i'm not a corporate person i'm a, i'm an entrepreneur which was hard for me at times uh, not not because of them because of my strengths and my you know you start some it's it's you know when your child gets married they, they go into other ways it's still they're still part of you but they're they're living a different life
0: yeah gosh I think that that's a really good metaphor uh-huh. because now the child has a different spouse yes. than somebody else um, and you're you're certainly still part of their life but okay. it's not a hundred percent yours anymore. Right. But
1: it was a good thing to do at the time. And my husband and I did not have deep pockets. We grew quickly, you know, we invested a lot of our money back into the business. So it, it was an answer to prayer. It was the right thing to do. And it allowed me now in the last 10 years or so more, I have a smaller staff. I had 120 employees at the time. I sold Nancy's notions and, and, A lot of my time in those days were spent on, you know, more operational. We had an HR director, but, you know, you you want to keep your your family happy. (laughs) And um, that was really important to me to every day, practically go walk through the building, say hello to everyone and I didn't do it every day, but at least every week I spoke to every person there and Mm -hmm. involved in their families. And, you know, we live in a small town, so that was easy to do.
0: Right. And, and, and they were a part of your family. And so this sale allowed you to have someone else be in that role. It didn't have to be you. Exactly. Right. And it allowed me to be, I, my, the creative part of my job had kind of fallen by the wayside. It was more As so often happens when you start a creative business and it grows. I mean, yours grew at a much accelerated pace to most people's, but I think many people can relate to that feeling of, my gosh, I spend 80% of my time in front of the computer now and I never am sewing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this allowed you to get back to some of that creativity. Yes, exactly. Okay, and you've stayed involved. Yes. You're still a spokesperson right. for BabyLock and that sort of thing. And Nancy's Notions is a mile and a half away, <laughs> so it's
1: my I, I have a small office here with we have five or six employees, or te- no, I don't call them employees. My coworkers, and we're a small group, and we work together. So it's it's all a good thing. Right. I see.
0: Okay, and I wanted to hear a little bit about your family. So you've referred throughout this to your children. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have two sons yes. that you had through both birth and adoption. And I I wonder if you talk a little bit about being a mom, uh, being a working mom, especially when your boys were young. Because in the book, you talk about your nanny, Joan, Mm -hmm. who helped to care for them when you were working. And some of those conflicted feelings of sort of not being present all the time, being a working mom, when maybe, you know, not everyone was doing that. That to this day, you know, if I
1: you know i i wish i i wish i had spent more time with my kids but then my kids grew up to be great adults so i i don't think they suffered that much joan who came to our house every day and lived and w- is a member of our family at christmas she comes you know we make sure we have all of our family together when joan's there and her kids her family part of ours and Living in a small town, we, we came home for lunch every day. I could go to the kids' events, break away from work. And I tried, and I, we tried, really, at Nancy's Notions to allow our full-time people to do the same if possible. To There's a Mother's Day tea that they could go to that and so forth. But it is a balancing act, and there's no doubt that I, you know, I. when you mentioned that, I
0: could just feel a little
1: lump in my throat thinking oh yes.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, and I think so many of us feel that way and you can't be in two places no. at once uh-uh. and you can't replicate yourself there's only one of you and it is you know true to care very deeply about two different things at yes. the same time. But you can give your kids and my dad,
1: my dad and mom were farmers and you know they both worked a lot. And it, and, but they were there, but they weren't doting parents, but love, you know, I knew I was loved and cared for. And I think farm kids tend to have a great responsibility or know how to work, how to commitment, maybe too much sometimes. But Mm -hmm. um, I think our, our kids got To see how you balance family and work, that you, if you start a project, you finish it, and if you, you know, how to work things through. So, through osmosis, encouragement to working moms and working families is that you are teaching your children something that, you know, without saying anything, by your commitment to your family. And I I always tell my kids, you know, you're privileged, you know, you have you have everything that you need, but you have to work for it and you have to give back. So I, th- I think you have to learn to balance what you're, if you're working, there's some benefit that uh, that your kids can learn from that as well.
0: Absolutely. I think that's an, an to- totally true. And Very helpful and reassuring to those of us who do try to do both Mm -hmm. at the same time. So I think, thank you for those words. And you mentioned that your parents were farmers. You grew up on a dairy farm. You were very involved in 4-H as a young person and really credit that experience to helping you develop your presentation Mm -hmm. skills, your sewing skills. I didn't do 4-H because it was not part of what was offered where I grew up in suburban Washington, D.C., but (laughs) I did have home economics. Mm -hmm. And that is, in eighth grade, is where I learned how to sew on a sewing machine. And my daughters, I have three daughters, and they go to public school and don't have home economics in school, despite the fact that we have excellent public schools here. Home economics is not part of the curriculum. And I wondered how you feel about that. And if you feel we should bring it back and how it could be modernized for today's kids? Well, part of me, you're going to be surprised at this answer. Part of me
1: thinks it is not a public school curriculum topic because with, with so much pressure of learning the basics when I think back to when I went to school, technology was not part of it. You know, there's so much emphasis that I think needs to be made more in English, <laughs> in mm-hmm. teaching people how to write, how to spell. <laughs> I, I have a real problem with that. But, uh-huh. but anyway, okay, on that aside. Then the other side of this coin is life skills should be taught not only in sewing and, and and menu planning, but in the industrial arts or woodworking, welding, all those life skills. So I think And I also think maybe financial planning oh my too. Word, how yes. appropriate, Abby, yes. <laughs> and yes. So there that is a whole so I think sewing as a topic itself, no, but in a big scale of things, introducing kids too. you don't have to go to, you know, I know that you have a great litany of education, but you can make a great life by going to a technical school and learning a trade. But if they're not mm-hmm. introduced to those trades, how are they going to know that? You could make a, easily a business at home, whether you're sewing machine, a woman with a sewing machine is power. If we would give people an introduction to that, So I can't solve the problem, but I I do think there's a place in it, but not a class by itself.
0: I see. Okay. Yeah. I think that's interesting to hear. That's a good perspective. And I asked on Facebook, I asked some of my friends to suggest a question to ask you. And one of them suggested a good one. So I'll ask it, which is, if you were jumping into a lifeboat and could only bring one sewing notion with you, what would it be? <laughs> oh, oh my! Oh,
1: a lifeboat and only bring one sewing notion. Oh, scissors, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but boy, if you don't have needle and thread, um, I'm not answering that question very well. I, I I would have to have a couple of things, but just the
0: basics, I guess, would be the yeah. Okay. I think scissors is actually probably a good choice because you can use it for other things (laughs) besides sewing. (laughs) (laughs) That seems like a good one. And so the other thing I was wanting to ask about is about all of these changes that you were referring to around technology and things like that. And you've kept up so well with them, but now we access sewing instruction and Mm -hmm. sewing media in so many different ways. You know, it might have been when you first started, that it was really hard to find a book and there was no television show. Mm -hmm. But now, I mean, it's almost like there's too much. It's absolutely everywhere. You go on Pinterest, you can find Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of tutorials for every technique. And so although, you know, you have managed to keep up with that, I wonder how you're sort of thinking about the future of all of this. And, uh, you know, publishing, sewing, publishing is struggling oh, yes. sure. right now. And, and things are kind of in a time of flux. Everyone goes to YouTube to get instruction for free. So how are you feeling about the state of the industry at this moment? Well,
1: I was just talking about this same topic two days ago with my good friend, Eileen Roche, who is publisher and designer of Designs and Machine Embroidery. And she said, Nancy, we have to figure out a way not to feed this very hungry animal that wants everything free. And, you know, with the Internet, the blog, Pinterest, YouTube, Facebook, streaming, everything. We have to somehow have to figure out how to get paid for our expertise and our knowledge. And I don't think I have the answer for that. It is you can't be in one spot you have to have a lot of tentacles that go out and figure out a way and this if you're in this business to monetize yourself is the trick i don't i don't think i have an easy answer for that it is finding a niche you can't ignore that things are free but how can you sustain yourself by giving away everything is a, is a trick and i guess i can't answer that
0: yeah i think there's probably a lot of different ways that work for mm-hmm. different people, mm-hmm. whether you're selling patterns or teaching or teaching online. And and maybe the answer is that it's a combination of multiple streams. Yes. So that's one way to think it through. And that's, that's
1: what I do. You know, I license many different things. I, and that's what keeps me afloat by having these multiple events. And then also making sewing and quilting an event an entertainment by having a destination, by being part of a special program. There are plenty of them that whether it's online or whether it's at a community college, at a a hotel event where people come and be part of it, a lot of work, but it, it, that's something that we can't ignore either to have, we need to interact with other people in our, who like our same kind of craft, our same kind of how-to, because it just re-energizes, it re-energizes me. So I'm assuming it does to other people as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of which, you have an annual sewing weekend, Mm -hmm. which is coming up in May. And I wondered if you could tell people about what that is and what to expect. Yes, we do
1: two uh, events a year that are fun to work with that have, let me just quickly make sure I got the right dates. Um, we do a sewing weekend every year in, in Beaver Dam with, through Nancy's Notions. This year, 2017, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the 4th, 5th, and 6th. We have seminars, shopping, events. It's, it's a fun three-day event. And then we also do a quilt expo at a large center at the Lion Energy Center in Madison, Wisconsin, where we have about 20,000 people come. That's It's like the 7th through the ninth of this year. And that is where you get the interaction. You see beautiful quilt shows or beautiful exhibits, and you get one-on-one. And that's, since I don't travel as much as I used to, to hear back from our customer, or my viewer, what are you interested in? What, what would you like to see? It, it gives me a whole fresh perspective.
0: Absolutely. And I think on this online age where all of us are connected virtually, to me, these in-person mm-hmm. experiences take on even more importance yes, and meaning. Absolutely, I highly recommend attending an in-person event because as you said, it's energizing. And also as a business owner, you learn so much <laughs> right. from just talking to people and asking them, you know, where do they buy fabric and what are they sewing now? And what do they think about that quilt? And mm-hmm. it's just really informative. So that's wonderful. And I know in 2015 you were diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. Your life has had a lot of different medical issues and this this is one of them and and I wondered how you're feeling now.
1: Thanks for asking. I'm feeling so much better. It was it was 2 years of treatment and surgeries and tough times. And I have to say thank you to my staff at Wisconsin Public Television. We did some creative programming. They allowed me to record you know when i was feeling well and my staff here was very supportive the word remission was used a year ago and i'd say i'm back to 90% i had a very unusual bone cancer and a replacement of a, a femur and i have a mechanical leg so i walk with a cane which is humbling but it um, but i am Doing fine. I have my own hair again, (laughs) which I had a great wig. It it was just the best thing, and um, (laughs) I hated wearing it because it was so hot and uncomfortable. But it people would say that's a wig, you know, and it was. So I called it Rachel. It had a name, and (laughs) and uh, so I am very thankful and grateful to dedicated medical staff and a husband that, wow, such a caregiver. And people who go through life-changing illnesses, they get a lot of the sympathy and, but it's the caregiver that needs it as well. So just my sideline comment.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. That's really, um, and it really makes me feel good that Thank you're you. feeling better. I- yeah. Um, and I wanted to get to some recommendations. One is that you're a knitter. And I wondered, uh, what, what's, on your, what's on your needles right now? What are you
1: knitting? I, I, I knit small projects. But one of my favorite things to knit are felted clogs or felted slippers. And I think many of my friends have received these as birthday presents. But they're, you knit with double yarn and big knitting needles and they're they have a sole that's two layers and oh they're they're really cozy and comfy but then you have to felt them which is the hard right so the, they go through the washing yeah, machine yeah that, that's the hardest part I think they're here they look like they'll fit the uh you know the a yeti they're <laughs> so huge <laughs> and then when they shrink they're you know half the size and it's just kind of fun or I knit scarves or but Right now I have this, these felted clogs on the needle. I have one done and one to go for my mother my mother said, pair I had
0: we're out. I need another one. So Oh well that's a good sign. Yeah, it is. <laughs> She's it is. actually wearing your hand now. Uh-huh. So that's great. And you also enjoy reading. And I wondered if you could tell us about a book you've recently enjoyed. Oh gladly. The book was written by Phil Knight,
1: who is the founder of Nike.
0: Oh, I have this on my uh, Amazon list. I just added it the other day. That's so funny. Shoe dog. It is a great yes. read. Um, okay, I'm
1: going to buy it. <laughs> do. And, and then I read that book, but I listened in the car recently to, um, it's an older book, Garlic and Sapphires by Ruth Rheingell, I think is her last name. She's a food critic, was a food critic, maybe still is for the New York Times and dressed up to go into restaurants to review them, dressed up as different characters because people recognized her going into a restaurant. And so she became different people. And the, the Audible book of that is perfect because the reader takes on these different accents and it's so much fun to listen to.
0: Uh, that's one of the things I love about listening to books on Audible is you get mm-hmm. that. Yeah, the reader adds so right. much. We recently listened to Anne of Green Gables. With my daughters, and oh, um, I felt that same way. She does such a good job taking on the different mm-hmm. characters' voices. Thanks mm-hmm. for that recommendation. What, what makes... book do you have for me, Abby? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually kind of really into tech, and I loved um, the biography that came out not too long ago of Elon Musk. Okay. I think he's a fascinating person yeah. who is not afraid to think completely differently. Mm-hmm. Than everyone else, and to do something that everybody's saying is impossible, and I really admire that. I'm going to so I'm going to read that, that next. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, well, Nancy, this has been terrific. Thank you You're so welcome. much for taking the time to be on the show. And I want to say thanks for inviting me. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been listening to the Walshy naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, WalshyNaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. This episode was sponsored by Story Publishing. Story is the leading publisher of your favorite craft books, including sewing staples like the One Yard Wonders series and their best-selling knitting series, One Skein Wonders. Plus, go-to technique handbooks, including Cast On Bind Off, Inventive Weaving on a Little Loom, and All Points Patchwork. Check out the growing library of technique videos and free projects on story.com and sign up for their monthly newsletter to make sure you always know about their latest books for your craft room bookshelf. Thank you so much, Story. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.